Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The weather might be freezing again this morning, but there's plenty of hot news out there to talk about and debate, as you would expect from the home of common sense. First up this morning, I'm delighted to announce that the disgraceful case against two former paratroopers has collapsed over in Belfast. They were accused of the murder of an IRA terrorist who himself was guilty of killing 15 soldiers in a case dating all the way back to 1972, when Joe McCann was shot three times at a British Army checkpoint after he resisted arrest from the RUC. This morning the former Veterans Minister Johnny Mercer has called the prosecutions of Soldier A and Soldier C, both men in their 70s by the way, an appalling national scandal and he's now hopeful that a series of other cases will now be dropped for lack of evidence. There could be as many as 200 other veterans who served in Northern Ireland during the Troubles who are now in some way being found uh, to have been wanting in terms of how they behaved, how they conducted themselves and what they did. Johnny Mercer, of course, resigned from amid claims that the government had failed in its duty to protect these brave men who had simply put their lives on the line for their country during those troubles and to be dragged through the courts 50 years afterwards is nothing short of an abomination. Boris Johnson should fix this problem and fix it now because it's another stain uh, on the way that this government has not kept its promises to the very people uh, who it relied upon uh, to calm the troubled waters of Northern Ireland during a very, very difficult time and a very turbulent era. We'll be asking commentator and barrister Bobby Friedman why things went so far in the judicial system following the Good Friday Agreement being signed in 1998, which of course led to many IRA terrorists being released to walk the streets of Ireland quite freely. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, I'm delighted to say we're joined once more by Tonya Buxton, chef extraordinaire, businesswoman and mother. She's got plenty to say about the suggestion that children should continue to wear masks in classrooms until June. And she'll be asking why this lockdown is still in place despite new figures that show now that only one case in 10,000 exists in the over 60s in London today. That's one case, not even one death. Plus, would you take a third jab if it was offered to you in the wintertime? 0344 499 1000. We're also heading north of the border uh, to take the temperature in Scotland just one day before the big Scottish Parliament elections. We're finding out why France is threatening to cut off all the electricity to Jersey over a fishing dispute. Sacre bleu. And we'll be asking how highly paid BBC presenters are still allowed to make vast sums of money on the side hosting events. How does that work exactly? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. We are, of course, live streaming on YouTube and on Twitter as well. Keep an eye on our Facebook account as well, where an awful lot of the stuff that we do uh, goes up as separate interviews. Plank of the Week was recorded yesterday. It's out there already. Uh, We'll be hearing from that coming up a little bit later on. And Prince Harry might even make an appearance. After all, uh, he has been on Plank of the Week, I think, every week this year. Year so far, for one reason or another. Let's talk to Bobby Friedman, a political journalist and barrister, of course. Bobby, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Looking at this story from Northern Ireland, it really seems quite remarkable that it got quite as far through the judicial system as it did. How did that happen? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? And uh, it was thrown out on a uh, on legal grounds. This was because the uh, the prosecution was relying on material from the historical inquiries team that took place many decades ago. And then uh, there was a further interview with these soldiers in 2010, and they tried to rely on that to to make good the deficiencies in the original interview, because these soldiers weren't interviewed under caution Mm. and uh, and there wasn't a fair process. So that's why the case got thrown out. But there's a bigger question, isn't there? There's a question of why, in a time when we've accepted that Northern Ireland has moved on, when, as you say, IRA terrorists have been released from prison, and it's to allow uh, Northern Ireland to move forward to a peaceful future. 
why is it that only some people are still being looked at for, for prosecution rather than people on all sides, rather than letting everybody move mm. on uh, in a peaceful future? And it is something, after all, that the government promised that they would do. They promised to set up a veterans ministry. Uh, They put Johnny Mercer at the head of it. They said, we're going to look after veterans better than we have in the past. And when it comes to mental health problems that they might have, homelessness issues, you know, trying to find them jobs after they've left the armed forces. And also they promised that they would not pursue uh, this rather ghastly kind of prosecution, historical prosecution of people uh, who had done things effectively that they were asked to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, obviously it can be it can differ on a case by case basis sometimes. I mean, in the say, um, depending on the facts, you might come across a, a story of a soldier who who did something that was that was abhorrent at the time. You yeah. might want to to look at if, if there was very clear evidence. I could I could see how you might might want to investigate that. But this wasn't that case. This was clearly even looking at it. It was clearly hotly disputed. Uh, there was a suggestion that they acted wrongly, but the soldiers always said that uh, that their actions were legitimate. And of course, you are in the, in in effectively they were in a war at the time. Mm. But it, it it comes back to the fact, you know, I, I I worked in Northern Ireland. I reported for Northern Ireland for a year. I remember I I was interviewing Martina Anderson, who was a Sinn Fein politician who was in in the government at the time. And uh, we were talking to her, and uh, my producer said to her, "Well, uh, did you have, ever have kids, Martina?" And she said, "Well, no, because I was in prison." And the reason was she was a politician, but she'd been in prison because she was convicted of conspiring to blow up people in England. Yeah. Um, but that was that was the settlement that was made in Northern Ireland. Mm. Everyone had to make their peace with it, literally make their peace with it. And and it, it took a lot of a lot of a lot of compromises on, on every side. But this is why I think it, it's just very odd to to not draw that line and move on. There were there were bad things done on both sides. Uh, there were things that soldiers did badly wrong during the Northern Ireland conflict. Equally, of, of course, and, and moreover, you know, horrific, horrific actions undertaken by terrorists in, in Northern mm. Ireland. But we've moved on. It, it doesn't quite make sense in that context to be bringing these prosecutions, does it? Well, there doesn't seem to be an upside to it, really. And the only upside can, can, would seem to be um, a kind of appeasement of, of the Sinn Féin um, supporters and the Sinn Féin political arm and movement now, um, which is all about getting a united Ireland. And certainly some people see, see the problems at the moment in Northern Ireland, which are related, obviously, to uh, the single market and the Brexit situation as well, um, as, as, as leading everybody down that road to what might become a united Ireland. And I think that's a much more serious issue, in a way, than looking back into what happened 50 years ago uh, and trying to sort of somehow make it right. Well, that's the thing. I'm not. I'm not even sure that, apart from the families of those involved, I'm not sure there's a great clamour in Northern Ireland for for this to happen, for it to be investigated, even even amongst Sinn Fein, for example, mm. because as you say, they they've got bigger fish to fry. They want to push for a United Ireland. Of course, uh, Arlene Foster stood down. We're going to have a new first minister in Northern Ireland, which could be be very significant. All all of these issues. We want to preserve peace in in Northern Ireland. P- peace in Northern Ireland uh, has has done wonderful things. Uh, there and the, and the, the the progress that Northern Ireland has made over the past fifteen years is astonishing. Yeah. And looking backwards is is going to help that. And as you say, there are difficulties going on at the moment. There obviously uh, there may well be bigger questions about whether there's going going to be uh, a question of unification of, of Ireland in, in the future. Sinn Fein are going to be pushing for that. Obviously, Unionists are going to be strong strongly opposing that. These are all future questions. 
what what does this achieve to to go back 40 50 years in, in highly disputed circumstances where it's going to be incredibly difficult anyway to try and get to the truth of this yeah to rake old uh, over old wounds and old ground I'm, I'm not sure what that does and for these two individuals as well um, as we're calling them soldier a and soldier c i mean they've been dealing with this now for something like 15 years you know, without knowing whether they're going to be found guilty, whether they're going to be dragged through a court, whether they're going to end up having to go to jail. I mean, it must have been dreadful for them because Paul Johnson, who's quoted this morning, who was deputy director of the historical inquiries team, said that they had found no new or compelling evidence against either of these men. And yet um, the Northern Ireland Public Prosecution Service went ahead with the prosecution anyway. Yeah, I, f- I find it really surprising. We have to remember what a lot of British soldiers went through. The conditions in Northern Ireland were, were horrific. I remember, as I say, when I was working out there, I went and spoke to lots of former soldiers. You know, one guy who was 18, mm. blinded within three months of going over there, for example. Yeah. Others badly, badly injured, ter- terrible injuries. Uh, the, this this was proper warfare, te- terrible conditions that these sol- soldiers were in. Now, as I say, that doesn't mean that every British soldier acted at all times with propriety and did the right thing. It, it, of course, we, might, we know the realities that didn't always happen. Mm. But for people who were involved in a battle for, 40 years ago, to, to have that hanging over to you, it, it's, it's just not, not right for, for, for this kind of issue to drag on for 30, 40 years. You right. need to give, if someone's accused of something, you need to, to, to give them the opportunity of answering to that. And then once it's answered, you, you move on. Mm. So I think it's, an, it's another reason why it just doesn't make sense to, to have historical prosecutions of this sort. No. And also, when you look back on, I mean, I'm uh, a bit older than you, Bobby, so I remember the troubles probably slightly better. And I remember also the bombing campaigns that took place when I was at secondary school in London during the 70s, where there was a bomb going off like it seemed like every couple of months, you know, uh, and, and quite, you know, terrible, horrible things were happening. But even watching the footage that some have been showing recently around these cases of, you know, army uh, land roads driving through areas and children literally throwing petrol bombs at them, throwing stones at them. And it was a very awkward, you know, you say it was like a war. It was like a war, but it was like a war like no other where, you know, an awful lot of the combatants could not be engaged with. Exactly. And it was, and it was against, in effect, although, although a lot of those people wouldn't, wouldn't see themselves that way, against, against your own citizens. Mm. So it's, com- it's a completely different situation, Incre- incredibly difficult situation. And, of course, on all sides because... We know that there were there were um, there were loyalist terrorists. There were obviously the the IRA terrorists, uh, and then you had the army in the in the middle of it. So this was an incredibly difficult situation. But as you say, I mean, I think it's something that younger people. Um, and you're right. You know, I, I only remember really the tail end of the of the, of the troubles. Um, but it, and, and people who are younger than me don't have any living memory of mm. it. Of it going. You know, I remember Canary Wharf bomb, Warrington bomb, that kind yeah. of thing. But you, but people who are ten years younger than me don't know that happens. It, it's easy to forget where Northern Ireland was. Um, it's easy to forget that in the middle of Belfast, one of the capitals of the uh, of the four nations, that there were roadblocks you couldn't get around, get around the city. Mm. Um, and I mean, there, there still was... is. I mean, when, when we were looking um, just a few weeks ago at some of the problems with the uh, uh, the demonstrations and the, and the riots that were going on, you know, there's still a gate that separates two part, two halves of the city. And people don't get that. I mean, Belfast is a very specific place. And if you've been there, Bobby, you'll understand. But if you haven't been there, it's hard for people to even measure what it's like to, to have Catholic and Protestant communities more or less completely ghettoised. And as much as they've done wonders to, to work together, uh, there's still a massive problem problem there absolutely and the the so-called peace walls that you're talking about the ironic name where uh you have uh protestants and catholics literally on on the other side Mm. of a a fence from it from each other um and you know that's why it is such a tinderbox that you you can't 
you can't just take it for granted. And I think that's that's the problem that when when you dig things up from the past, some things are just better left mm. because you if if you rationalise, analyse stuff too much when you're trying to move on, it makes it difficult to do so. For when you have terrorists in government, if you really think about that too hard, it's pretty difficult to to accept that. But you, but people have accepted it in a very mature way in Northern Ireland because they they can see the benefits. They know that it is better for everybody to, to have peace. But but that is why it's not that all the discussions at the moment about um, with the EU and ensuring the, the the future peace in Northern Ireland. This isn't some political posturing. It's because of the fact that actually the the resolution that's been achieved there is is really incredible. The fact that what has been done is is something that has not been done in many countries around the world. And Northern Ireland is is used uh, as an example when people are trying to resolve conflicts el- elsewhere. Uh, in Colombia, Colombia, they look at what happened in Northern Ireland. Yeah. But it, you, you can't take it for granted. And as I say, the more you take us back to the 1970s, um, in what we're looking at today, the more it pushes us back there. We don't we don't need to do that. Northern Ireland needs to, to look ahead uh, and not, not dwell on the past. No, of course. And I mean, this is being called a day of shame for the government, uh, a farcical trial. I mean, with your barrister's hat on, will this put pressure now on the Northern Ireland Prosecution Service? Maybe the government will put that pressure on them to say, look, we, we really should uh, have another look at all of this and perhaps not proceed. I'm sure it will. I mean, certainly any prosecutions that are based on evidence from the uh, historical inquiries team as this one was i mean i think those are going to be untenable but i think it does it does raise the broader question because you look at what's the public interest what's the public interest in in these prosecutions at this point um and and i think this shows the risk of trying to uh, to prosecute events from long ago it's not saying that you should that you necessarily shouldn't and as i say then a case could emerge where there was really clear evidence for example of a really horrific crime being perpetrated and you know that would be much more difficult. But if you, but but I certainly think that that, that this is going to going to stop further prosecutions of this sort because you because you see where this ends up. Well, exactly right. It can't be cheap either. Do you think there's any chance that, that soldiers A and C might seek some kind of compensation, or do you think they'll just be glad it's over? Well, it, it's it, it's generally difficult uh, to to get compensation when you're prosecuted. The uh, uh, the the, the parameters the rules for getting for getting that competition are very tightly drawn so um i, I imagine that's unlikely mm. look most people who are wrongly accused of crimes or accused of crimes and acquitted generally want to to move on with their lives and they have to to make the best of it these guys are in their 70s i imagine they they want to make use of the next 10 20 years rather than dwelling on the yes. past yes well let's hope so and let's wish them well just on another uh, legal point i was interested in, in on your view bobby on on the care home situation because we heard harriet harman this morning on julie hartley brewer's show talking about how um it's very simple to make a little bit of legislation in the commons uh, to basically enforce um, a piece of guidance which at the moment is not really being followed by care homes the situation being that you know some care homes are not really following the spirit of the guidance which they're being given, which is to let people in to see their loved ones? Well, it's if care homes won't do it, then government should step in. It is simple. You could do it. You could do a very short piece of legislation. What has happened with care homes and access to, to care homes is, is really a national scandal, isn't it? Now, mm. of course, you want to protect people in care homes. And we all know that uh, that if you, if someone gets COVID in a care home and you're unvaccinated in there, and it will spread very easily. But the point is now vaccines have been offered to everyone. Everyone in care homes should have already been vaccinated. And it's just cruel. It's cruel. I mean, I, I read a story in the papers this week of uh, some, a widow in a care home who 
went to went to the funeral of her husband and then was forced to go into isolation for yeah. for 14 days right. i mean that is just a lack of basic humanity isn't it yeah. i mean i just do not know i do not know how we as a society can allow that kind of thing to happen to people so we need to ensure that people who are in care homes often often with conditions like dementia who, who therefore will suffer the most from a lack of contact we cannot let these people uh, be in there isolated effectively imprisoned it, it is just a national disgrace yeah, it really is and it seems to me to to, to to put a spotlight once again on on the whole care home sector which before covid was already kind of being looked upon as um, not really fully functional and not really fit for purpose because so much of it is run privately so much of it is run for profit so much of it is run um, in a way which is quite frankly disgraceful um, uh, I've heard stories of people being told if they don't like it you can move your relative somewhere else you know this kind of thing where you know there doesn't seem to be any kind of cogent um, policy which all of them follow because they seem to do whatever they want yes and it's it's a real issue and the the, the problem is care homes are lucrative and there are frequent stories where a care home can be closed down at very short notice mm. um and we all know mo- moving an old, an old person to a new home can be it can frankly can kill them yeah. i mean they're, they're not the same again um it's just one example and i i do think that we all we always knew there was a problem with the care sector and there's not enough funding for it and to be fair to theresa may what did for her in the 2017 election was an attempt to to try and deal with it um, and i think we need a mature conversation about how we fund social care in this country but i also think we the COVID situation has, has indicated that we do need better enforcement better ways of ensuring that there are proper standards that, that have enforced but also take a step back, common sense when, when you're dealing with people in care homes, remembering that they are, at the end of the day, humans who need, who need the same thing as everyone else who's not in a care home. Mm. So they need regular contact. They need to be treated with, with respect. And frankly, that has not happened. No, it really happened, hasn't it? And finally, Bobby, um, let's talk a little bit about the big elections tomorrow. Uh, obviously, it's local elections, so there are many people who don't expect the turnout to be brilliant, uh, not least depending upon how terrible the weather is. Um, but some of the most uh, disappointingly kind of pessimistic types seem to be uh, on the Labour Party. They don't seem to be talking much up at all. Um, and in fact, the argument seems to be, um, if it's really bad, will Keir Starmer survive? Yeah, well, you always have to be a bit careful, don't you, going into election day, because it's in every size interest at this point, to say uh, say how bad their chances are, mm. so that whatever they achieve is, is seen as a victory. But it's certainly right. You've got the big mayoralties. Uh, you've got uh, in West Midlands. You've got the uh, the the, the mayoralty. They're they they're coming for re-election. Looks like uh, the polling's very bad for for Labour at the moment on that. Obviously, the Hartlepool by-election a really big test. And remember mm. that is a seat that uh, has been solid Labour for years. Yes, of course, Tories did very well in the in the in the Red Wall at the last election. But this was Peter Mandelson's seat. So it'd be, it would be a very, very big deal for a governing party as well to win this a midterm, midterm uh, by-election. Yeah. That would be really significant. So, yes, it, for, for Keir Starmer, if, I think he, he needs to hold on to Hartlepool. He needs to ch- try and win one of the mayoralties. Any, anything less than that uh, will be a very, very bad night for him. Mm. But it's, it's not clear where Labour could really go next. I think that's the big problem. No, I think the biggest problem they've got is who do they represent now? And that's the kind of conversation that's being had. The left in the party is saying, well, clearly Keir Starmer is not the answer because he's somehow managed to make himself even less popular than Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, By the same token, there isn't really anybody else that they represent now, apart from that kind of rather uh, inner city metropolitan kind of intellectual left. Yeah, and I I think Keir Starmer's problem is he's afraid to sort of 
be who he is. And, you know, whether people love or, or hate Boris Johnson, he, he, he is who he is. Uh, whereas Keir Starmer, you always feel that you're just, you're just getting a, re- a really anodyne version of the real Keir Starmer. We never hear what he actually thinks about no. anything. And we know, we know that because uh, he supported Jeremy Corbyn um, in, in office for years and tried to get Jeremy Corbyn to become prime minister when we all know that in reality, Keir Starmer hated the idea of Jeremy Corbyn mm. being anywhere near number 10. Yeah. So that's his big problem he has. And as you, as you say, Labour's got this big divide now where, yes, they win, they win the votes of university professors. And uh, that's absolutely true. But how, how do they win proper traditional Labour voters in, in those northern heartlands? Uh, because the, the way Labour set itself up has, has, has alienated them. And I think it's coming on to a bigger issue, which is how long are voters' memories about Brexit. And mm. I think maybe the, the, in Hartlepool, this has shown that the, their memories are a bit longer than Labour would have hoped because they don't forget that Labour did want to have a second referendum mm. and didn't want, want to, to actually achieve Brexit. And I think and I think what's interesting is Keir Starmer obviously wants to just pretend that there's no such thing as Brexit. That never happened. Mm. But, but I think interestingly, in some of those seats, it, I think voters are remembering that. Well, this is it. I mean, he spent most of the last few years wishing that it hadn't happened. And now he's pretending that it has happened. He doesn't have to talk about it anymore. Uh, but the one place I think he should stay away from is any boxing gym, because I don't know if you've seen that video of him trying to hit a punch bag. Uh, it's about as pathetic an attempt, I think, as I've ever seen. <laughs> well, and, and Sadiq Khan was also in a boxing gym. It is now every, every single politician has to go to a boxing gym, apparently. But then none of them does it properly. Again, it, it, it's 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 this awful politician version yeah. of boxing. I mean, come on, get put your back into it if you're yeah, going to do it. Absolutely right, Bobby. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Bobby Friedman, political journalist, barrister, uh, a man about town, uh, with some interesting views on the Northern Ireland situation. Also, of course, in the care homes as well. I'd love to know from you uh, what your local care home is doing, how you're being treated, and if your relatives are being seen by you, and if you're allowed to do the things that you want to do, because that is what the government now may have to uh, enforce by law. Mid morning. With Mike Graham, Talk Radio. Time to welcome back Tonya Buxton, who once again has brought an incredible box of delights <laughs> here, which I shall be sticking my nose into a little bit later on. But some lovely new muffins. What, yes, what, what they muffins are, are these? They're Earl Grey tea infused uh, ginger and pecan muffins. Oh, brilliant. Ginger's very good for you, isn't it? It's very good for you. Good for your digestion. It really is. Now, I was very, very um, honoured to go to the Real Greek, one of your uh, many, uh, there's a few of them, aren't there? There's one of your few. many restaurants over by Tower Bridge last week. It was lovely when the sun was out, um, but when the sun goes in, it's still a little bit cold, isn't it? So it's still it's, tough it's, for it's, you guys. It's really tough for everybody. It's, t- it's tough for the people serving. It's tough for the restaurants because it doesn't make it cost effective. But it's really tough for the cl- customers as well because mm. you're sitting there. You're trying to have a nice meal. You're trying to enjoy yourself. And there's a hurricane around yeah. you. Know? Well, I, mean, I know this we've got week... a blitz spirit here in Britain, but it's a bit too much. Well, this week it was just unreal, wasn't Crazy. it? I mean, yesterday yeah. we saw reports from parts of the north of England where people's entire sort of outdoor areas had been swept away where basically the guys were saying, well, we can't now open for three days because we've got to get new lights, we've yeah. got to get new Crazy. gazebos, we've got to get new chairs because we lost some of those. How can you survive that? You can't. And, I mean, yeah. people are saying to me now, you know, as you're sitting there shivering and you're doing your very best and you're trying to contribute to the economy, you know, you look inside the building, and which is quite big, it's quite airy in a lot of cases, but yet you can't go in. But yet you can go shopping. I'm bumping next to people in uh, all, the, all the shops, yeah. like Primark, Zara, John Lewis, all of these places that I go and shop, and, and people are bumping into me, mm. literally, yes. and yet can't sit around a table. I know. It makes I mean, no it really doesn't make any sense. We'll come back to that in a yeah. minute, because let's talk first of all about um, the whole situation with schools, um, with classrooms, with masks, and with the kind of 
what seems to me to be this incredibly slow pace at which the government is trying to kind of make our lives go back to normal. It seems ridiculously slow. It's it's it, and also not science backed. Mm. That's the thing. You know, you're you're forcing children to wear masks at school, which we know. Um, from teachers and we know from psychiatrists, psychologists, people that work with children in the field affects their learning. Yeah. It absolutely affects their learning and not just their learning but also their psyche. Yeah. You know this whole thing and I'm going to quote uh, Zoe Clues from uh, who's a fantastic hypnotherapist and does a lot with children. She says that you know this whole thing that children are resilient mm. it's it's where did we get that from? Right. Children are not resilient. What happens to children when these things are happening in their lives is that they store it mm. and it becomes later trauma in adult right. life. So these kids are having to wear masks, not see people's expressions, not be able to co interact properly with their peers. This is getting stored up mm. for an adult generation that's going to have lots and lots of problems. Absolutely. It's a bit similar, isn't it, to when parents get divorced and yeah. they sort of assuage their guilt by saying... Oh, you know, the kids are fine. They don't really mind being ferried from one place to another, one weekend here, another weekend over there, separate holidays. Well, they do, actually. You know, and I speak as somebody who's been through that. So, you know, you can't assume that the kids are going to be fine. Yeah. You can try and help, help them be fine. But, you know, you can't pretend that it doesn't affect them. Absolutely. And the thing with masks in schools at the moment is because it's, I, you know, I'm yet, I, I, I scour the internet for science to prove that there's a reason to wear mm. them. And I'm yet to find it. Yeah. At very best, it's a maybe. Yeah. That's the best you're getting. And for that, you could be, and I'm pretty sure are, causing some serious damage to children later in well, later this is down the, the thing. line. Once but it's again, the fear. It, yeah. it's, it's the thing that gets to me most, sorry, Mike, is that the wearing no, masks like is... Con <laughs> Very few people do. <laughs> it's the, it's, wearing masks is... is tapping into the subconscious at the back that they have to be fearful mm. they have to be fearful of their their peers they have to be fearful of their parents they have to be fearful of other adults they have to be fearful of their teachers mm. and that is a subconscious fear that is getting stored which will then burp itself out in yeah. later life in eating disorders and and uh, ocds and all these things i'm not a psychologist but i've read all the reports about it recently and zoe clues is a psychologist and told me this and and no one's standing up and taking responsibility no. for that just... Well, this is the thing. People are, are going along with it because it's easier to go along with it than it is. There are some people who don't go along with it um, and, and good luck to them because they're the ones who are actually making a difference. But certainly I've spoken to parents, I've spoken to, to, to my, my own two, two boys who are, who are in school and they describe how school is. Mm. And school is as it always was. You know, the kids are jumping about all over yeah. each other. Most of them are ripping the masks off as they walk down the corridor. You know, they can't be told by everybody that they have to be watched every single minute of every single day. If they want to go to the toilet and they move from one part of the school to another part of the school where they're not supposed to go, they go anyway. Yeah. You know, and the teachers mostly are not wearing masks. And so in the end you're kind of going, well, this wasn't the case last December, but why is it the case now? And, and now they're saying we must... And they said, didn't they, that they were going to review it at Easter. Yeah. We're now well past Easter. We're past May Day. They're now saying, let's do it until the summer. But on what grounds? This is what confuses yeah. me so much. I don't understand the grounds. I'm not I'm not kind of actually a, a negative polemic person. I've, you know, up until COVID hit, I was a very law-abiding person, yeah. not questioning anything, because I thought that the government had my best interests and my children's mm -hmm. best interests at heart. But because this has happened lately, I'm having to question it. And I want to be told why. Yes. Why do they have to wear masks? Explain it to me. Yes. I'm not unreasonable. And they can't. Just let me know why. And that's the difficulty. I mean, Julie Hartley-Brewer does this every single day. She'll get a government minister on and she'll ask them please to tell us what's different now from what was happening in December yeah what's different now from what was happening last year when even Sage was saying it's not a good idea to wear one yeah right yeah. then it suddenly became a good idea to wear one and then it was because it was protecting you then it was because it was protecting other people you know there seems to be always a different reason for doing it and it doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to an awful lot of it now no it all sounds like 
for me as a as a lay person as a kind of working mother it just sounds like a me a reason to keep people frightened mm. that's what it feels like and mm. and and the problem with that and is there that, are people who are frightened oh really and kids that are really frightened yeah. you know children that are really frightened and the problem with that is that yes it might keep people in their box doing as they're told because they're frightened mm. but as i said the conversation needs to be about what is this fear doing? And what is this fear doing to our children and our young adults? That's what my big concern, the thing that keeps me up at night mm. are, is my children. Yeah. You know, businesses and things like that, I get that, that you know, I worry about them, but that doesn't keep me up at night. Right. What keeps me up at night is what's happening to my kids and yeah. what's happening to, to kids generally. Sure. And this insidious creep of fear, the wearing of masks, keep your distance, wash your hands all mm. the time, it's getting into their subconscious, they're not going to recover. Mm. And I want someone to t explain to me why this is necessary. Well, exactly right. And I think we are owed that at the very least. I was talking to someone the other day who said that there was, there was a new... Um, sort of mother and baby group um, because they, they, they just had a child yeah. and the mother and baby group were told well if you're going to attend the mother needs to wear a mask now the whole point that's, of a mother and baby group is to teach a baby about intercommunications right it's obscene and it's the baby obscene. won't know what a face looks like yeah, no and the whole the babies stare at faces uh, you know that, that's the one of the things they do that's what's so lovely having a newborn or a, a mm. young baby is that they look at you adoringly yeah. they, they pick up every single movement of your face it's it's all about that interaction yeah. now if, they, if you've got a face mask on what are you teaching that child? I mean, gosh, Dad, what are they, I'm also, thinking what are they Mike, at? I hadn't even thought of newborns and, yeah. and things like that. I've been thinking of kind of school-aged children. Mm. Now I'm going to worry about them yeah. as well in their playgroup. Well, it's yeah, ridiculous. Because, because, you know, I've had four children and you, you, every time you look at a baby, something else happens. Yeah. You know, they see something else. Absolutely, or they, they read something Or you else. go, oh, they're smiling. Yeah. And then you realise you've just got wind. You know, it's all of <laughs> yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Where, but you learn it as a yeah. parent as well. And if you're a first-time parent and you're being told you have to wear a mask and your baby can't look at you, I mean, why? Exactly why? Explain to us why. If there was, if there's good science and good reason, we will all do it. Mm. But there is no good science. There is no good reason. There's no reason for us not to be opening up now and just trying to reprogram the fear. So we've had a massive propaganda of fear, haven't we? Yeah. We have a lot of money. It's still on, going on. on fear. Yeah. I mean, did I did, have I got this right that 322 million were just given to a contract to go on till 2022 for this advertising? This is for the advertising. Yeah. Can I put my hand up as a taxpayer mm. and say I don't want my money to go there? No. I want my money to go on to children. Yeah. And especially, I mean, we've been talking about kids at school now with, with who are wearing masks and stuff, but there has been such a huge amount of abuse going on because mm. of lockdown and people not being able to see these kids. Right. I read recently that um, the, there was a charity that took delivery drivers and trained them up to try and spot neglect yeah. and abuse in right. houses. And there was one case of a child that had marks on its face and the house stunk. And the, when the police arrived, it was the worst case of abuse they'd ever seen. Mm. And this is, I don't want a delivery driver to be responsible to have, to do that. To have yeah. to do that. Right. That's not their job. That's not what they're there for. I want that 322 million to not go into advertising. I want that money to go into caring for our children and Absolutely making sure right. they're not getting abused and, and it's neglected. And it's the most deprived children who suffer really during this time, not yeah. just from, um, you know, being locked into a house that they, they're frightened of being in because they need to get out, yeah. but because nobody can see what's going on. Exactly. And, you know, you suddenly have this secret world where you don't see anybody. I mean, I'm very encouraged now that I see more and more people out. Yeah. You know, the trains are busier, yeah. the streets are busier, as you say, the shops are busier, but there's no real rhyme or reason to why everything else can't be no, busier. I mean, like I say, if there's only one, it's not even one death, it's one case it's insane. in 10,000 in the London um, overall um, over people over 60 years of age. The conversation needs to change mm. from COVID to getting on and saving our children. I don't know if you know this, Mike, but I was a primary school teacher oh, until the age of 30. Okay. And I taught mainly at, in Tottenham. Mm. And one of the things that um, 
I, struck me when I was teaching there, I was a teacher for eight years, um, is that there, for many children, school was a safe place. So I'm absolutely thrilled that kids are back at school. But yeah. during that period that they weren't back at school, I, I was so worried about all the children who's, where school was their safe place. Mm. So they're back at school now, but they're still having these lockdown restrictions and still having to suffer them. We, we have to change the conversation. Like you said, there's one case of mm. COVID. The conversation does not need no. to be about COVID anymore. It needs to be is how do we get back to normal, the proper normal, the old normal, yes. the pre-COVID normal, mm. not this weird standing boxes normal. Right. And, because we still don't know, and I'm assuming you don't know yet from the restaurant perspective, what happens on May the 17th? You know, yeah. Are you being told, yes, that's fine, everybody can now go back in the restaurant and you can have everybody sitting where they where they want to sit? And to pretend that you know it's a lot safer outside may well be true, but the way that people are doing it outside, um, it varies. You know, I've been, in, I've been in pubs where you, you might think you're outside, you actually might as well be inside yeah. because they're all people sitting very close to one yeah. another. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's sides to certain, you know, tents. There's some tents which have got three sides and only one side open. So it's a bit like being indoors anyway. But that's all arbitrary. If you can go to the shops and bump yeah. into people in the shops, the restaurant shouldn't be treated mm. any differently. So no. we haven't been told anything. And the problem is, is I think... So I you know, can't even prepare no. as, a, as a restaurant owner... No. No, in terms of staffing, yeah. in terms of you know yeah. uh, produce, in terms of stock, you know what do you do? I'm the consultant chef. I'm not the owner. I'd love to be. The no, owner I know that. Owner. But still, but, you, <laughs> but, but you're still, still involved in the process. Oh, absolutely involved in the process, and and it make again, it makes no sense. Mm. You can go into a crowded shop. And yet you can't sit in a restaurant, irrelevant of whether you should have sides or no sides or yeah. whatever. It's irrelevant. And the problem is, is that I know there's a lot of people that would just fight against it and say, you know, damn it, I'm going to open up anyway. But mm. we, you, we then lose our licenses. Yeah. Everyone will lose their license. So we are under the cosh. There's nothing we can do. Government have to stand up and start looking after the economy and the people that are struggling so badly. Yes. And also, and we talked about this the last time we touched upon it, the, you know, the events business, for example, which is a completely separate business to hospitality, yeah. where people make their living yeah. putting on weddings, you know, putting on parties, arranging for, you know, all sorts of events that, that go on around. We've just been hearing, I think, today that they're going to cancel the, the, the Brighton Pride rally, which was due to take place at the end of August. It's the end of August. I mean, we don't even know what's going to be happening by the end of August. Why are they cancelling it now? That's that's what I find most frightening. Mm. That's and, and and again, that taps into this fear thing. And that that's outside, about. by the way. That's outside. At the seaside. But it taps into the fear thing because you think, okay, look, we've been told 21st of June, everything's going to be back to normal. I can I can keep my my soul up. I can keep my my mm. spirits up till the 21st of June. And then you hear that there's COVID marshals being hi hired from the 1st of July. Yeah. This has been cancelled now in the end of August. What's going on? I know. I just want it to be explained to me. Why are you right. doing this? And also, all of this, as we now know, has been driven by sage scientists. I mean, this guy, Professor yeah. Pantsdown, as I call him, Neil Ferguson, who has constantly been invited onto the BBC to give his view, despite the fact that he's never got anything right in his entire career. I don't know why they even bother asking him, This right? is the thing. It's great, isn't it? What a great job to yeah. have. I tell you, if I did the predictions he did in, over my career, or if you did yeah. well, in if your you made, career, you'd be, you'd be sacked. If That'd you made food like he predicts you know you'd have people dying of food poisoning exactly. in the streets you know more than there exactly. are of covid but this is the thing you know and all of these models that they put before us and say well this is what the science tells us that's not science a model is not science a model no. is a prediction yeah you might as well have me saying you know i've got a horse at the uh, the 230 utoxeter you know and i think it's going to win but the question for me is and I, this is the question i keep asking everyone is who appointed 
SAGE and who appointed the people that are in SAGE? Mm. Because there are lots of different scientific bodies. We know, uh, you know, Sunita Gupta for me is she's a heroine. Yeah. And, and the flack that sh this woman takes yeah. is incredible. She's a scientist. Instead of being respected and, you know, held upon high, she's mm. getting all this grief because she has a different view. And si that is science. Science, science is, is about testing that. different views. So who opposed all these social scientists that are in SAGE and yeah. all these people? Behavioural scientists. Behavioural scientists. Yeah. Why? Who, who gave them the job? Who made Sage? That's mm. the, I think that's the question, isn't it? That right? is the question. Who and also, made Sage? And not only who made Sage, but who then also made Nerve Tag, which is the second operation which they set up when they fired when Pantstown had to leave his job because he'd been found to have broken his own rules. Yeah, uh, he left Sage, but he still stayed in this thing called Nerve Tag, which is something another similar. One, yeah. It's another acronym for something like you know watching over us or whatever it's called. But you know these are all people um, who sit there. Give Boris Johnson the benefit of their wisdom, um, and he seems to just do what they say. But I had um, a, a doctor on just the other day, um, Dr. John Lee, mm, who is a former pathologist, yeah. right? Very well scientifically based, very um, uh, fulsome in his discoveries of certain things. And, and he says, in terms of mask wearing, he says, yes, it's true to say that the COVID droplets do hang in the air, but they do regardless of whether you're wearing a mask. So when you when you breathe in and out, you know the droplets Come are there. Through. Now, whether or not you're wearing one and it might protect you is open for debate, but it's certainly not a certainty by no. any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, he's one of those like me who thinks that we should be looking at how we make sure this doesn't close down and shut down the way that we live. Because there's no, I don't know of any other disease, and I said this earlier to another doctor, uh, which is, affects people so differently. You know, yeah. you could get it tomorrow mm. and we, be absolutely we've all had fine. It. My whole house you know? had it at varying, okay. varying degrees. And with varying degrees. So, you know, I haven't had it as far as I'm aware. Uh, my daughter's had it and she had it quite badly, even though she's young. Um, you know, so it does, but it affects everybody very differently. It really and does. And there is no nothing to suggest that the only real damage that was caused by COVID was to people over the age of 82 mm -hmm. in hospitals and in care homes, but far and away the most damage. So to suggest that the whole of the country is somehow in peril is a nonsense, isn't it? Again, it's it's all about the fear. It's all about I, what would be really lovely, and what I would have thought would have, would have happened in a cup at a country like this is that we would have got all the different groups of scientists, mm. and we would have had an open debate about it. Right. So we can hear scientists debate against scientists, but I want scientists in that field mm. to debate against it. I don't want a, sci a, a psychological or a social scientist or these scientists debating it because right. they, they they just debate on how people are going to react. Mm. I want immunologists and virologists and yeah. Um, the proper scientists who understand the virus and how the virus behaves to be debating it in front of our eyes so we can all have a listen and yeah. make up and whenever what's we the right hear, thing to do. And whenever I question individual doctors about why is this happening now, why is that happening, they always come up with the answer, which is something like, well, we're not really sure about blah, right? Well, so if you're not sure, then what are you doing? You know, you cannot future-proof me against harm. You know, I could fall on the train tracks on the way home. I could trip over and roll under a bus. You know, I could get hit by a car. Any number of things could happen to me. You can't stop that. And I think that's the thing that's been taken out of our hands as parents mm. as well. That we, We're not allowed to judge the risks for ourselves or our children right. anymore. It's been taken out of our hands. And I think that's where things are really wrong. Because as a parent, I, I, all I want is the best for my children. Yeah. And I'm sure that every other parent, that's what they wish. So even those that are pro-lockdown, they're coming from, we're all coming from the same place, yeah. aren't we? We're all coming from a place that we want the best for our children. We don't want them to be breathing through cloths and masks. So, and Because I've had heated <laughs> debates with other parents. My, my sons don't wear masks yeah. at school. Um, I sent, uh, there's a letter, I've sent it in. I, and know, if it was really dangerous, surely they wouldn't would allow I, that. Yes, but would I? But would also I? you wouldn't. 
would I let yeah. my sons be in danger? Because right. they're at but what I'm saying is, is if the school is allowing you to have that exemption, yeah. then they must know that it's not ab absolutely necessary. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And it just seems to be like it's a tool mm. for something else. And that's what I find quite worrying. Mm. And the same thing that you were saying just now is, oh, well, well, it might make a difference. So we'll look everyone up. What? How can that be a yeah. way of going forward? You know, we've we're in so much debt now as in a, as a country. I wonder that whether my never mind about my children, my grandchildren will probably mm. be still paying off this debt. Yeah. And yet it's all on a maybe or yeah. it could be or maybe. What? How can you do that to a country? You literally can't. And this whole question of variance and well, we have to make sure there might be not a variant that could come. Well, I mean that's life, isn't it? But that's I mean, viruses. End, all viruses yeah. have variants. This COVID is is no different. And I think one of the things that most people don't know is that. It's 1,400 people die a day in Britain mm. of various All things. All sorts of things, yeah. All sorts of things. Yeah. And, and But suddenly we had this kind of thing that was going, saying how many people were dying mm. of COVID. And, and also that figure was very wrong. Right. So that seeped in right. as well to itself. And I think there was know, four yesterday, by the way. Four died yesterday. Yes. So how, how could... Well, that... I did a story this week with a man, a young man, who was very interesting, not so young actually, but his father, 30 years ago today when he was 16 committed suicide mm. 175 people a week in this country kill themselves right now that is to me a far more important crisis oh, important. than covid right now where you know you're, you've, you've maybe got beneath 20 people dying of covid you've got 175 people who will not be here anymore because they've taken their own life now that to me is a proper crisis that we need to address on a weekly basis. That's what I mean, the conversation needs to change. Mm. We need to step away from this COVID obsessed conversation and we need to look at what's going on in this country because that is a, that's a horrifying figure. Isn't I had it? no idea it was so high. Yeah, and you know, 75% of them are men. Yes, I do know. And young men under young the age, men. and it's the biggest cause of death for young men under the age of 35. Well, I know for myself that one of my friends is, is, has almost got her husband on suicide watch because mm. they've lost everything. Financially, they've lost everything. Yeah. And he is so low. And so the trickle-on effect of that, so their two children are seeing their dad so low. So, you know, a six and a nine-year-old so are going depressed. to be forever affected yeah. by that because, you know, at the age of nine, you, you absorb it all. You can't deal with it. And mm. it will, they're depressed. That'll come out in their future. Mm. This is a woman who's watching her husband at all times, literally... Can you imagine the panic that you have all the time? Yeah. And he's destitute because he thinks, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. He's worked so hard to, to get where he's got and it's yeah. all gone now. Yeah. And so how can we still be talking about COVID? I know. This COVID thing that, like you said, four people died yesterday. Yeah. When this is going on now, why aren't we changing the conversation? It's incredible. Well, listen, um, incredibly, we are out of time, um, oh. but it's been an absolute pleasure. Again, uh, I'd like, so like to say that Tony's going to be with us every week uh, for the foreseeable future, as long as you can still do it. I'd love to, Mike. We'd Thank love to you. keep having these conversations. There's always going to be stuff to talk about, um, you know, because we in the real world care about all manner of things. Mm -hmm. We're not single cell amoebas who only go, oh, COVID, that's all we talk about. No, that's not what we talk about. I'd love to hear from all of you out there, your experiences, because you tell us, we tell everybody else, that's how it works. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, we're going to talk to Rebecca Ryan, campaign director at Defund the BBC. Because guess what? Amongst many of the things that BBC presenters have, apart from uh, six-figure salaries and rather nice expenses and taxis everywhere, uh, is that they're still allowed, believe it or not, to do private engagements, which rake in the cash for them, sometimes even using BBC property, sometimes even doing Zoom calls from BBC meeting rooms, sometimes using parts of the BBC organisation, and yet still making thousands and thousands of pounds uh, despite being paid by the public purse. Pretty disgraceful situation. Let's find out from Rebecca why they're still allowed to do it. Rebecca, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Nice to see you. Very kind of you to join us. I mean, Emily Maitlis, um, she gets paid £370,000 a year uh, she hosted a webinar um, on a company's website and was paid five grand for the privilege. Similar payments going to Andrew Marr, uh, who used a BBC meeting room, apparently, to do the same thing. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me that these people can just do what they like. Yeah, indeed. It's just, you know, it's the hypocrisy, I think, that jumps out at me most. You know, the way the BBC have been going after sort of um, who paid for Number 10's wallpaper... Um, yeah. You know, because they're talking about, well, if most of the British public think it's irrelevant who paid for number 10's wallpaper. But the BBC's point is that whoever pays has influence. Well, surely the same is the case here. You know, if you you do sort of, you know, a nice backhander sort of job for some um, wealth fund manager. Yeah. Um, do they not get influence in return as well? Is it not the same thing? Well, exactly right. And also, it's so ridiculous to me the amounts of money involved here. We've got Dan Walker, BBC Breakfast presenter, 260000 a year this guy gets. He's had about uh, two events charging £5,000 each for a wealth management firm. For Michelle Hussein, who gets 265000 um, she's done it as well. It just seemed, I mean, what's happened to this new guy, Tim Davey? He's supposed to have come in with a new broom, hasn't he, to sweep away all of the uh, uh, the situations that, that were wrong, to tell all the presenters they're not supposed to have political views on Twitter, which doesn't seem to be working either. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem so that he's changed. It's just carry on as you were. Absolutely. And those figures are actually only for the first three months of this year. So that's three months worth of earnings. It's not sort of a, an annual figure. Right. Um, so, yeah. And I think the, I think what's really bad about it, I mean, come, I'll, I'll come back to Tim Davey, but it, it's the fact that these people are using a taxpayer funded platform. You know, they wouldn't be invited to speak at these, you know, dinners or moderate these sort of senior executive schmoozing events if it wasn't for the taxpayer-funded platform that they were being given. Right. Um, and I think that's that's pretty outrageous. But Tim Davey, yeah, he, he, I mean, I think it was pretty obvious early on that, you know, he, he's, he's more interested in sort of winning the PR battle than actually making any real change. I don't think we've seen any anything that's actually changed since he's come in um, no. but he's you know he's fighting the pr fight so well that's the thing i mean you know as soon as he uttered the immortal words you know that political uh, 
messages should be kept to an absolute bare minimum. They shouldn't really be made at all if you're a BBC presenter. It more or less Im- immediately was uh, gave, gave, you gave a free pass to Gary Lineker because Gary Lineker said, <laughs> well, I don't have to do that. I mean, this is a guy, by the way, Gary Lineker, who at the weekend broke his own embargo on Twitter because he was supposed to be doing that four days to beat racism thing. Um, and so we're not going to tweet for four days. But he couldn't help himself. And by 7.30 on Saturday night, he'd, he'd put a tweet out, which he had to delete. On the, <laughs> when, when everybody, and it was against Lawrence Fox, of course. So it was a political tweet, um, yeah. which he had to then take down because people reminded him that he was meant to be boycotting Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And and, and uh, Gary Lineker isn't even covered by these figures that have come out today because he's a freelancer. So God knows what he's been earning on the side um, he's, you know, he's he's made a, a huge amount of money out of uh, the license fee payer, essentially. Yeah. And so. he and he and he sort of regularly rips the Mickey out of the license fee payer, doesn't he? Because yeah. uh, you know he even tweets about the fact that how, what value for money he is, and he takes a pay cut <laughs> uh, and makes himself out to be. And you know, and I mean, he's quite a whimsical guy, and I don't object to him as such. But you know, it's a joke of an organisation now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is that that stands out again is the hypocrisy here because. You know, they, the BBC are constantly pushing this kind of woke agenda yeah. and, and, and virtue signalling. But at the end of the day, what, what we can see clearly in these figures is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And those poor people are the, the people who are being bullied in their homes by the by the BBC. Yes. You know, the, the elderly um, are being harassed with letters threatening them fines. You know, single mothers, the vulnerable who are stuck at home are far more likely to be prosecuted for not having a TV license purely because they're sitting ducks. Mm. Um, So, you know, perhaps they do all this virtue signalling just to cover their guilt. I don't know. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because, again, it's the vulnerable people who are frightened the most. I mean, if I got a letter from the Mm. BBC threatening me with anything, I'd I'd set fire to it and throw it out the window. (laughs) Whereas, you know, most people um, who are, say, living on their own or might be elderly, a lot of women seem to get targeted, Mm. don't they, are are genuinely worried that somebody's going to come knocking on their door, going to break in and going to take their stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you've seen any of these letters, but they are extremely threatening to to people who, you know, are sort of living, you know, an average person, you know, they get a threat of a of a fine of a thousand pounds. That's a that's a huge impact if it was to be real. So you get a a letter that looks like a, a red bill, you know, reminder and it's sort of Wording in a very deceptive way to make it look like actually you do need to pay for a license mm. even if you're just watching on demand. It's it's quite deceptive, um, and and they they use these threats deliberately um, to, to to push these more vulnerable people into paying and mm. keeping them funded. And then here they are, just sort of you know noses in the snouts in the trough and riding on the gravy train. And that's only the bits that we know as well, because you can be pretty yeah. sure if you're, um, you know, Emily Maitlis and you're getting paid five grand by some uh, big company, there's going to be other mm. things going on in the background, yeah. which you might either be, yeah, yeah, you might be in receipt of some some form of, of, of perk. You know, they might supply yeah. you with a nice, you know, S-Class Mercedes to take you to your, uh, your, your, yeah. your next holiday. You know, all sorts of stuff could be going on. There doesn't seem to be any transparency until they get asked the question because they had to be forced to give these things out, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, this is the first year that they've actually released these figures and they seem to be sort of presenting it as a kind of, oh, look at this, uh, isn't it good that we're we're revealing these figures to you? But no, like you say, there'll be a lot smaller uh, payments that are coming in under the £5,000 threshold, which means that the, the actual total amount will, will be a lot higher. Yeah. And, and as I say, this is only for three months. 
And when they do um, kind of talk about the uh, the prosecutions and the and the small number of people, I think I read a, a, a piece where Tim, I think it was Tim Davey, who said, "Oh, but we've only, only five people have gone to prison in the last few years." It's like, well, that's five people too many. What do you mean only five people have gone to prison for not paying for a TV license? It's ridiculous. Exactly. But how many people have actually been prosecuted, you know, and gone through the stress of being dragged to court, you know, and th- th- that that's not a small thing to people. You know, no. It can have a huge impact on people's lives. And how many people have given in actually before they got to court? Because the, the letters are just so bullying that people think, oh, actually, this isn't worth the hassle. I just want the stress off my plate. I'll just pay it, even right. though I don't want to, to fund this organisation. So. The fact that five people, like you say, went to prison, um, well, well, that's, you know, that's, you know, just the, the top of the iceberg, really. All, yeah. the, all the other stress and, and bullying is going on underneath. It's absolutely not on. And what's the situation now regarding the licence fee? Because from what I understand, they've, they've kind of kicked it into the long grass again now, haven't they, until about yeah. 2027. So nothing's really going to change. Well, well, it's it appears that the well, twenty twenty seven is when the next charter review comes up. Mm. Um, there's been some indication from the government that actually, I think it was um, John Whittingdale, one somebody said that actually it's going to be, it will be renewed, and therefore it's it's going to be another seventeen years before we actually get to do anything about this. I, I think that's I think that's outrageous. Mm. There is uh, a midterm review that's coming up next year in which um, they are allowed to start sort of looking at financing and what have you. And what we would be looking for at the fund, the BBC, is for there to be some kind of staggered move down away from the license fee. And if the government don't start doing it now. It, we will. They will sign a new charter, mm. a new charter, because they're not going to suddenly cut off the funding to the BBC. It needs to be sort of tapered down, sort of crossover into into commercialisation. So, we'll 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 know in the next year if the government are going to actually do anything about this. And I think it's it's just for everybody. I mean, everybody that supports defund the BBC and, and a huge amount of the public out there who who don't want to have to keep paying for this people to just you know stop paying just mm. move over to on demand stop paying and um you know put the pressure on them that way because it's you know it, it's just outdated and, and not needed right well that's the thing i mean it's it's such a cumbersome model isn't it with so yeah. much thing so much i mean every so often i'll i'll, I'll switch on you know the bbc news service the 24-hour news service just because you know i can't imagine why but i just, just sort of self uh, self-harming myself but you know <laughs> there's always some new face that pops up you know some new correspondent you go well, how long have they been there you know somebody in washington or somebody in tokyo you kind of go in oh, sorry i've only just this person has clearly been there for a long time and you've never mm. seen them there's, there's thousands yeah. of them absolutely very bizarre. Well, Rebecca, listen, good luck with the campaign. Uh, I'm sure Thank that you, uh, many people will be behind you. Director of Defund the BBC, uh, you can find her on Twitter, Rebecca Ryan, uh, talking to us there about the ludicrous latest from the BBC, uh, where Emily Maitlis, Dan Walker, Naga Manchetti, of course, uh, she gets paid five grand for an online event as well, 195,000. Andrew Marl, he's gone 360,000 a year, by the way. Uh, absolutely incredible. And they take all this money as if they've somehow earned it, as if they are somehow entitled to it, as if somehow they would get that if they came and worked here. Well, I don't think they would, actually. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Fascinating story uh, all over the papers this morning, particularly on the front page of The Telegraph. French threatened to cut off power supply to Jersey over fishing rail. Let's talk now to James Filial, who's editor of the Bailiwick Express down there in Jersey. James, a very good morning to you. Good afternoon, I should say. 
Good afternoon, Mike. Now, this is a very bizarre story. I mean, you know, just when you thought that Brexit wasn't going to be any stranger than it already has been, uh, we've now got the French who supply apparently 95% of your electricity um, threatening to sort of cut the cord. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. Um, it all it all uh, cropped up yesterday, and I think um, people here were very surprised by, by the threat. It was completely out of the blue, but mm. uh, the French would say that they would do that. Yes, quite. I mean, is it the case that everyone knew that the French had this much power over your electricity supply? Well, I think it's a moot point as to whether they actually do have that much um, control over our electricity supply. To take a step back, um, our electricity is supplied via a cable uh, on a contract with EDF, the uh, the, the big uh, French um, uh, power supplier. Right. So that's a commercial agreement. So for a politician in the French parliament to say... Um, uh, unanimously, you know, I'm going to push the big red button and turn it off. Is there's quite a there's a big step between her saying that mm. and actually doing it because you know you would suggest that um, breaching a commercial agreement like that is a pretty big thing to do. Absolutely right, and it would also be, I mean, given that uh, uh, electricity is is what you might regard as something which is um, part of your need to live, um, that that would be a serious act of of, uh, of war if nothing else. But but what is exactly the the dispute? Because I'm told it's about the fishing waters around. Jersey, which are obviously quite uh, quite close to France. So what, what's the actual dispute? What are they not happy about? OK, so in a nutshell, this all goes back to Brexit. Um, Jersey and Guernsey didn't have a vote in Brexit. Um, it wasn't something that we were uh, we, we took part in, but obviously mm. the effects of it are, are, um, are for us too. But essentially what Brexit did was it gave Jersey control over its territorial waters. Mm. What Jersey did last uh, Friday was implement a licensing system um, to affect that control, basically saying to the French, look, if you want to fish in these waters, you need to have a license. Um, what's now happened is the French said, well, actually, we don't like the terms of those licenses. And that's what's caused the row. Mm. And what I'm told they're, they're saying is that if they kind of agree with this licensing rule that you would like to, as Jersey, I don't mean you personally, as, as, as Jersey would like to implement, it means they'd have to probably accept that and eat that up from every other part of Britain, right? Yeah, I mean, the, as ever with Brexit, it's never just one thing. It always has all these knock-on effects that you just can't see, like a line of dominoes going yeah. off down, down the way. So, yes, the French are, are concerned about setting a precedent. But for us here in the Channel Islands, this is, um, just as Brexit is more widely, this is all about control. You know, I mean, do we have control over our, our territorial waters or not? And there's, you know, allegations that those waters have been uh, heavily fished in recent years, yeah. and there's a sustainability point. You know, anyone who's watched uh, documentaries like Sea Spiracy, mm. you know, people are very concerned about their um, uh, fish stocks, fish populations, and we want to take control of it, and that's what Brexit should allow us to do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, certainly I saw Sea Spiracy, and uh, we spoke to Dale Vince, one of the executive producers of it. I was quite shocked at the level. I mean, you kind of know that there's factory fishing going on, but the level of factory fishing and the way that it's done is so tremendously awful that you would think this would be a good opportunity to kind of to rein it in a bit, you know, and you would like to, to, to think of fishing as a relatively, you know, cottage industry, which is uh, full of people from Jersey in relatively small fishing boats going out uh, and bringing in enough of a catch to sustain the island. Yeah, and, and as ever, the reality is slightly different. So the, uh, the Jersey fishermen here, um, their catch is basically sold in France. The, yeah. the vast majority of the Jersey catch is sold in France. And that's things like um, lobsters uh, and oysters. You know, it's kind of shellfish rather than what we would call wet fish. Yeah. So uh, the, cash is sold, the catch is sold in France. And that gives us a, a massive issue here because essentially what we're doing is upsetting a customer 
So we've had a row with France, but it's France we sell the fish to. <laughs> so uh, if, they're, if they're not happy with how things are going, then that has a knock-on effect for our industry. But, you know, as ever, it's a point of principle. Do we want to take control of those territorial waters or not? Mm. And what's happened so far is the politicians have said, well, actually, we do. And here's a licensing system and here are some terms you've got to comply with. And, and presumably that would include them paying for the license and presumably limiting their access so that there wouldn't be too many French boats coming in. I don't know how what the proportion is now, James. I don't know whether you do. Is there a lot of French fishing of the Jersey waters? Yes, there is. So uh, previously, um, there was something called the Bay of Granville Agreement, which I don't want to go too far into, but that lasted back to the early 2000s. Mm. And that was um, the point with that was it was like a shared permit system. So basically, Jersey and France kind of agreed what permits to issue. What changed after Brexit was that gave Jersey control, not a shared system. That was the essential difference between the two things. Right. So as ever, it just gives you more control over your, your territory. OK. And are you, Jersey, just capable of, of controlling the territorial waters around Jersey as opposed to a sort of Channel Islands wide thing? That's correct. Yeah. So this doesn't affect Guernsey at all, just by nature of ge geography. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever been down here to the Channel Islands, but Guernsey's a bit further off into the northwest. Yes. Yeah, funnily enough, I used to go to Guernsey as a child, so I don't remember it that well, but I've never actually been to Jersey. I've always wanted to come to Jersey. Well, you should come and you should have a fish supper. It, um, <laughs> as long as the power's still on for us to be able to cook Well, it, this is the thing. It. Yeah, I mean, you want to land at the airport and find that there's blackout. It would be the first time that had happened. So how is Jersey these days in terms of the, the whole lockdown scenario? What's the, what's the COVID post-COVID scenario going on? Well, I, I mean, I hate to use a word like lucky in the context of COVID, but we, we, we do feel um, perhaps a bit more lucky than other places because Jersey has borders, obviously. Mm. So because you can control borders, um, you know, quite simply, we've been able to protect ourselves from some of the worst effects of COVID. Obviously, we have had um, some cases and we have had some people, unfortunately, passing away because of it, mm. but not in the numbers that uh, you've seen in, in the UK and they've mm. seen it in Europe. So I think we've got two cases now, uh, no more than that. Um, and we're, our vaccination programme is, is proceeding at pace. So, you know, people are, are, are getting vaccinated. So we're actually opening up now where we're eating outside and we're eating inside as normal. So there are very few, if any, restrictions for local people here now. And we're open to travel again from the UK. So if listeners wow. do want to come you know, come and uh, experience some of what Jersey has to offer, then we are open. Well, listen, that, you've just done great, the greatest advert, I think, for, for Jersey that I've ever seen, James. And thank you for being so knowledgeable about the fish. And uh, perhaps we will see you at some point in the next few months. James Filial there, editor of the Bailiwick Express in Jersey, talking about this fiendish French plan uh, to try and cut off electricity to the Channel Islands. Absolutely extraordinary state of affairs. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.